You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. Before I get started, I just want to say something very quickly about the subject at hand. My personal feeling is we do a lot of really cool things in dermatology, don't we? But this is, in my opinion, the most important thing that we do because this can, among other ways that we change people's lives, this is life and death in a lot of ways. And so uh, I used to tell my residents at Walter Reed, pay attention in your your pigmented lesion courses, your dermoscopy. My understanding is you you had a long dermoscopy course uh, on, on Wednesday. Some of the most valuable time that you will spend in your education is focusing on the pigmented lesions and trying to figure out which ones matter and which ones don't. And so I'm, I'm going to try and highlight some of those things here. Uh, just by way of background, Eileen, you gave a wonderful introduction. Thanks so much. I really don't have to say much more, except I want to tell you where I come from. I now live in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is where I, uh, where I reside. And after, God, it feels like a year of grueling winter and uh, snow and rain and ice, it finally looks like this today. I have uh, one relevant disclosure that I should uh, t- mention, although I'm not going to talk about it at all during this particular talk. Um, I'm an advisor and a speaker for Castle Biosciences, uh, the genomic expression profile test. I will mention it in the t- talk after lunch, and I'll mention that it is one of my relevant disclosures again. But it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, or at least in this talk on melanoma and pigmented lesions. This talk is uh, an excerpt of one that I do with the AAD, and I'm going to be uh, presenting it in Chicago next month, at least parts of this talk. And so try to shed light on the darkness of pigmented lesions and early management of uh, melanoma. So first, some pre-test questions. Number one, an invasive melanoma with a Breslow thickness of 0.55 millimeters should be treated by A, observation, B, wide local excision with a half a centimeter margin or five millimeter margins, a wide local excision with a one centimeter margin, wide local excision with a one centimeter margin, and then referral to surgical oncology for consideration of a sentinel lymph node biopsy, or wide local excision with two centimeter margins. guys were on board. Um, next question. The follow-up for patients with melanoma should occur on an annual basis every six months, occur every three months for the first year, and then six months thereafter for the next four years, occur at the recommendation of the primary care physician, or occur in accordance with the patient's wishes. Excellent music choices, by the way. Brian, thank you. Good. Wow, smart group. Don't even have to go through the post-test questions or anything here. How about melanoma in situ? Best managed by radiation, 3-millimeter margins, 5-millimeter margins, or 10-millimeter margins? Plenty of time. Good. Okay. So the agenda, things that I want to cover uh, for the better part of this hour. 
Uh, we're going to talk about the problem in general, uh, pigmented lesions, and why this is such a, a vexing problem for us, in particular dysplastic nevi. And the thing that keeps me up at night is those difficult patients with the multiple clinically atypical moles. You know the ones, the patients come in and you scratch your head after they leave and think, God, should I biopsy that? Uh, I hope not, maybe. Uh, and then we're going to talk about melanoma, who gets melanoma, and how we manage these things with the standards that we have available to us today. The AJCC 8th edition that was just published this year, January, and then the NCCN guidelines for management of melanoma. But based on your pretest questions, you guys seem to be kind of up, up to speed for the most part already. Now, melanocytic lesions for me, I break them up into three simple categories. If the good, the easy ones. The bad, also easy. You look at it and you're like, oh, that's melanoma. If you can't recognize it as melanoma right away, I don't know, that's not good. And then we have the ugly. Those are the ones that keep you up at night and make you wonder, should I be biopsying it or not? So incidentally, this was published about a month ago. Look at this, are you all, who's familiar with this? Did you see this? This is scary. We may be out of a job at some point here. Computers, this uh, convolutional neural network, uh, or, or CNN, actually did a better job than seasoned dermatologists at identifying malignant versus non-malignant. So we have to figure out how we're going to incorporate that into our armamentarium going forward. But it's just something definitely that you should be aware of that's coming down the pike. I always say I think the 2020s are going to be mind-blowing, in particular when it comes to medicine. And it's going to be things like this that we're going to have to be careful for or watch out for. So back to melanocytic lesions. The good. All right, your typical presentation is anxious parent comes in, mother, father, brings their 15-year-old boy with this thing that she's been watching very closely since he was born, and it's getting bigger because he's getting bigger. But you should be able to look at that and very confidently provide to the mother and the child that this is safely watched. This is a benign dermal compound nevus, something that doesn't need to be removed. And given its location, I would opt to convince them that the scar is going to be worse than, uh, than actually taking that thing out. And I said, the other easy lesion is the bad. This is a woman that came to me last year with this lesion on her thigh that she noticed was changing. And you don't have to be a melanoma expert to look at this and say, that has all the features of melanoma. And you pretty much know that that's going to be melanoma right off the bat. It's okay if you don't absolutely know, but you should probably know that it needs to come off and so uh, we take that off, it's half a millimeter thick, and uh, so forth. And we'll talk about the management of that as we go on. And then here's another obvious bad. Two years ago, 44-year-old police officer uh, comes to my office at the end of the day, like they like to do on Friday, when you're ready to call it. And uh, I've had this thing my entire life. I can't see it. My wife tells me that she's worried about it for years. Uh, he finally comes around because his primary care physician said, yeah, I think you should probably go see the doc about that. And so I have a question about this. This lesion is best managed by shave biopsy, quick one, four millimeter punch, four scouting biopsies of the most worrisome areas, or excisional biopsy. Oh, good job. Okay, we have a little bit of variability there. 
Well, I'm going to talk about this one now just very quickly because it doesn't show up on the post-test. But if you were to do a punch biopsy on this, that could be very dangerous. And people do this often. Um, I think Eileen mentioned I'm also a dermatopathologist, so I see this all too often, and it frustrates me. A four-millimeter punch biopsy of something like this, and now I think probably everybody here has the benefit of electronic medical records with uh, color photographs. So if I see a, a, a four-millimeter punch, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it's a compound nevus, but they thought it was melanoma. And then I go back and look at the, the, the photograph, I'm like, whoa, how did they do a four-millimeter punch on that thing? Not good. So that's not a right answer. You go back and, and take more of that. A shave biopsy is not going to be good. This thing is way too big, unless you're talking about the type of shave biopsy that's actually a saucerization, which means your attempt is to get under the whole thing. However, this is big. I mean, you'd, you'd have trouble with bleeding and possibly infection. Don't saucerize that thing. It probably needs to be closed up. So an incisional biopsy or excisional biopsy with about one millimeter margins. So here we are on Friday afternoon, my MA's receptionist, everybody wants to go home. We're like, no, we, we can't let this guy go. We gotta do our little uh, full-on excision of this thing. Turned out to be a 0.9 millimeter melanoma, but not all of it. And then that, and that goes back to what I was saying about if you do partial biopsies of this, you're likely, or it's possible, that you're gonna miss the bad part of this lesion. That's why you have to get the whole thing. Because most of this was benign. I mean, the guy's had it his whole life. Right? He said he's had it his whole life. So it's actually a melanoma arising in a benign nevus. So I, I can't emphasize enough how important it is. Don't do it if at all possible. I mean, sometimes on the face you have to make exceptions, but um, don't do a partial biopsy of a much larger lesion because you don't know what's beyond the clinical or the, uh, the histopathological borders of the biopsy specimen that you take. And so now we move on to the ugly. Those two are easy, right? The good, the bad. They're not necessarily easy to manage, that melanoma, but they're easy to diagnose. And now we get to this. This is that same patient, the cop, policeman. Shouldn't say that, vernacular. So he's not an ugly guy, obviously, but uh, his moles are concerning. And also he had that big fat melanoma that we saw. And so now he has all these other little things. And, and, and what do we do? I try not to do this, but I sometimes find myself in this particular situation as well. I, I learned this, this uh, nomenclature from one of my teachers uh, in San Francisco. He used to call it the cherry-picking season. Basically, somebody gets a melanoma, and the clinician, us, gets scared that now, oh my God, now everything he's got is a melanoma. And so you just start biopsying a lot of things afterward. And I biopsied one thing on him. It was on his leg. Um, He's got a lot of stuff. So I think it was this one. And um, it turned out to not be anything of concern. And so now I try to limit myself to what I'm going to biopsy on, on a patient like this. And then, so we go back to the five hours that you spent on Wednesday doing dermoscopy and digital photography. Those are important uh, ways to, to follow these patients. Now here's another example of ugly, and I think it's going to highlight uh, my, my point here about when to biopsy and when not to biopsy. So this young lady, very unfortunately for her, has a lot of scary-looking moles. These are the kinds of things that, that keep you up at night. 
and these few on her breast. If you look at the right breast, there's a, a pretty good scar there already. And she said it looked exactly like the one on the left breast there. And so she's very concerned. Should I take the left breast one off? Because they took the right breast off. But you know what's interesting is the there was almost no atypia to these moles. And we'll talk a little bit about dysplastic nevi and grading of atypia uh, in a little bit here. But there was almost no atypia to these. They were benign nevi. And this is before she came to see me. And hopefully you're not one of these clinicians that, that does this sort of thing. But this unfortunate woman had probably a dozen scars. And one of the reasons why she came to see me was almost a second opinion to kind of get a different feel for what's going on with all my moles. This particular clinician that I went to see every year would always take one or two biopsies, sometimes three biopsies, and they always came back with completely benign or mildly atypical. So even after a few years, she caught on, okay, I have more than a dozen scars on my body, and they look a lot worse than these. There's atypical moles here, but the scars look much worse. Um, is there anything else we can be doing other than, than taking off these benign things? And so here's the, the close-up of, of the left. And look at this. You take it off, and you end up with a scar like that. Now look at the right breast. That's just her signature nevus you're, you're starting to look at. And you know what you didn't teach me, Brian? How do you go backwards? Is it this one? Oh, yeah. All right, good. So there's the right. There's the left. This is kind of her signature. And so rather than trading these things in for nasty scars, we'll just let them ride. And uh, we'll go on to another question, I think. There we are looking at these things very closely. So appropriate management for the prior patients, the ones that I just called the ugly, would include a surveillance biopsy at routine intervals to ensure that there's no transformation, close clinical follow-up with digital photography, multiple biopsies of the most clinically atypical moles, or ask the patient to identify his or her most concerning mole and then biopsy that one. Oh, cool. Gave us the right answer. So I'm going to switch gears completely because I would like to kind of, kind of put things into perspective a little bit about melanoma in general, who gets melanoma, and importantly, melanoma comes in many, many different flavors, and the world is changing about the way we think about melanoma in terms of their molecular signatures and how aggressive they are from that perspective. And it's not just the histopathologist, the morphologist, dermatopathologist, the guy that looks at it under the microscope and tells you what it's going to be in just Breslow thickness. There's a lot more to the melanomas now than just it's this deep, it's ulcerated, it may or may not have mitoses, and we'll talk about that in detail uh, in a little bit. And then this whole very, very nebulous and unreproducible concept of atypicality. I would, I would venture to guess that almost everybody in this room, when you biopsy something that you think is a dysplastic nevus, or an atypical nevus. When it comes back, you're looking for, okay, how am I going to manage this? And, and do you all see them and, and get the report back and it has mild, moderate, or severe atypicality? Is that kind of what everybody subscribes to here for the most part? That, that's kind of the American way. 
in general. Um, who's from California? San Francisco area. So they, they don't rate atypia at the University of California, San Francisco. They think it's silly. It's a dysplastic nevi or a dysplastic nevus. And then they'll give you a recommendation as to what more to do about it. If it's benign, then it's just a dysplastic nevus. Don't worry about it. Or it's severely atypical. Treat it like a melanoma in situ. And they don't rate mild and moderate because there's no reproducibility of that uh, in the United States. And one thing that's really, in the last couple of years, that's become very, very prevalent in the literature is this whole movement that mild and moderate atypical moles can be safely managed by just clinically following them along. More to follow on that. So back to who gets melanoma. We're worried about you know, patients who have very light skin types, red hair, many atypical moles, yet even darker skinned people can get melanoma, as, as we know, obviously, right? So I'm going to go through a few of the quick things, things that cause melanoma. Ultraviolet radiation, both uh, man-made and, and from the sun, indoor tanning, and then your genetics. And that's what I was alluding to a bit ago when you have your Irish person, Celtic origin, English, Anglo, far more likely than, say, somebody from Asia. But obviously, that's not hard and fast because anybody can get melanoma. Does this cause melanoma? This is kind of a silly one. I'm just switching gears here. Anybody remember this? Are you, are you familiar with this? These guys were just trying to make money. I hate this stuff. About uh, three years ago, if you Googled just the front line, what causes melanoma, this is the first thing that came up, these guys. And it came as a result of this publication, which I consider a myth about melanoma. Sildenafil, or Viagra. Um, Abrar Qureshi, one of my, my former teachers, I saw this in, uh, in 2014. I don't know if you remember this, but it, it made a, a kind of a big splash in the news. Viagra causes melanoma. And, uh. So who gets melanoma? We just talked about that a bit ago. Very often, white, affluent men. And who uses sildenafil? So I think it's more of an association than an actual cause. And, and that I just kind of th throw that in there as, as something that you need to... Uh, be aware of that the people know, but I, I truly don't think that there's any kind of association. And, and very recently, there was a publication that debunked it for all of the different uh, nitric oxide inhibitors that are used for erectile dysfunction. So we have UV radiation. I'm going to say a little bit more about indoor tanning. This thing right here is a monster. And thank goodness, the rates that the people are using this machine have gone down pretty significantly in the last few years, but people are still doing it. As this example of a patient uh, three years ago, uh, I was the, uh, the dermatopathologist on this, and I know you can't read that, so I apologize for that incredibly uh, small writing there. But there are two melanomas here, one from the right mid-back and one from the uh, left upper abdomen. And this was a 19-year-old woman. That's extremely young uh, to be getting invasive melanoma. And, and more unfortunately, uh, 0.87 millimeters at least, that's because the clinician just shaved right through the bottom of it, so they didn't get an accurate Breslow depth. And as we're going to talk about in a little bit here with regard to Breslow depth, that's how you manage your melanomas. You need to have an accurate Breslow depth to know, can I handle this myself, or should I send this to a surgical oncologist? So both of these were at least transected at the base 
1.63 millimeters, that was the one on the abdomen, and then the, uh, the one on the right mid-back was 0.87 millimeters. So I put this little note in the comment here, which I don't think you can see that well either. And then I put, while the diagnosis of two primary melanomas simultaneously in a patient, especially of this young age, is highly unusual, the features of both of these are indeed melanoma. And just to make sure, even though I was pretty sure that, that they were melanoma, I sent them both to Marty Mem, uh, now currently at the Brigham. Uh, and he said, yes, these are, are definitely melanomas. They are both, at the time, PT1A at least, but we'll talk about the new AJCC uh, grading criteria. And so now this poor, unfortunately, uh, young 19-year-old girl, woman, has, you know what they look like, these one-centimeter margin massive scars, one on the belly, one on the back. She was using a tanning bed for the prior three, four years very, very regularly so she could have that nice bronze skin, whatever that is. Um, I don't think she would have had these melanomas if she didn't use that tanning bed so much. So I think I made my point about that. Let's talk about uh, ultraviolet radiation here very quickly. There's the two concerning ones, B and A. Uh, they're both used in the lamps that, that you find in, in tanning salons. UVB mostly penetrates the top layers of the skin and is, and is responsible for sunburns. And then UVA can penetrate a little bit deeper. Both of these cause you know, photo damage and can increase risk for, for skin cancer. Incidentally, UVA is the one that's probably going to be more responsible for things like PMLE or, or light-induced rashes, phototoxicity. Just a, a couple of points here. Uh, and some, just to, to emphasize what I was saying about indoor tanning, uh, a study that was published in the uh, JAD as a letter in 2015 says that things that we already know, but it's nice to see them in publication. The indoor tanning increases the lifetime risk of developing a melanoma by 85% in children. And teens who use indoor tanning devices use them often. Now, I'll, I'll point out again that this, thankfully, has gone down dramatically in the last few years. And I think largely in part due to our efforts and the efforts of the uh, probably the SP, SDPA and the AAD uh, trying to, to uh, pressure regulatory uh, and then the government. The International Agency for Research on Cancer gave this, in 2015, the highest cancer risk category, stating that it is carcinogenic to humans. So we, we knew that already. It's been published. There are studies that show that. Uh, but it's nice to get a regulatory agency stamping a big fat label on it that says it's carcinogenic to humans and can cause sunburns. And, and sunburns are dangerous, especially to children. Not to go off uh, track here too much, but this is some data that came from the Brigham showing that regular users of indoor tanning beds dramatically increase the risk for basal cell carcinoma. So I'll admit, and it's still controversial, I am pretty sure, I think we all know, but it hasn't been very strongly uh, proven, not as much as with non-melanoma skin cancers, that indoor tanning definitely increases your risk for melanoma. But it's, it's very nebulous about how that's done, and I think You'll hear a little bit more about it after lunch when we talk about advanced melanoma and the genetic mutations that are involved. But it's a little bit more convincing for non-melanoma skin cancer and, and UV radiation. So patients who very frequently use indoor tanning more than six times a year increase the risk for basal cell carcinoma by 82%. So a little more about this. Uh, 
as I said before, uh, indoor tanning use has gone down among high school kids over the last several years quite a bit. There's a lot of legislation in almost every state now. This is old data. It was 42 states a few years ago uh, now, including my state, New Hampshire, that, that just published legislation banning uh, minors or under 17, period. Whether you have a letter from your parent or not, you cannot get into a tanning bed if you're a child. Now, back to uh, some of the known and, and more well proven risk factors uh, for melanoma. There's genetics and, and different mutations that, that people harbor. And, and then we talk about skin type, uh, Fitzpatrick skin type. Family history of melanoma is a known important risk factor, as you all know. Look at number three. I like this one. Lack of coffee consumption, or as I like to call now, coffee, thanks to the President of the United States. Did you know Kofefi was the word of the year in 2017? It was. He made it up, though, so it's cool. Uh, that the, uh, the coffee consumption and, and consuming more coffee or caffeine it bears out of this article from the Journal of the National Cancer Institute that shows that coffee drinking uh, and cutaneous melanoma risk uh, are inversely related. So the highest uh, degree of, of cat uh, of coffee consumption uh, was very strongly correlated with a, a modest uh, decreased risk for, uh, for melanoma. So I get my coffee every day just to make sure. Intermittent intense UV exposure. This is another important known risk factor. And I think it's, it's important to us as North Americans in particular, especially the ones in northern latitude who spend take New Hampshire as an example, or probably Seattle as well, the, the winters can be quite dark and not a lot of uh, UV exposure. But then you take off in January for a week in the Caribbean or Mexico or Hawaii, as you often all do, right? Go to the Hawaii Durham meeting and then get blasted. That is a known risk factor for in increased risk for melanoma. Not getting a lot of sun, getting a blast of sun. Not getting a lot of sun, getting a blast of sun. North Americans do that a lot. And then we get back to the patients with many atypical moles. If you have a lot more atypical moles, you're more likely to get a melanoma. And incidentally, this is one of the slight blessings of those particular patients that have a lot of atypical moles. They generally do better in terms of prognosis and risk-free survival and melanoma-specific survival. Why is that? It goes back to what I was saying a little bit ago that melanomas come in many different flavors. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule. You can't you know, hang your hat on it that just because patient Johnny has a million atypical moles and he gets a melanoma that he's going to do beautifully, but more likely he's going to do better than, say, the woman that I showed you with the melanoma inside her thigh, who otherwise skin is pretty easy to manage, not that much disease. I mean, skin is fine, but then she's got that nasty melanoma. Those tend to do worse. Those tend to look uglier under the microscope. But you all don't necessarily see that from this side of the microscope, but just something to know. So this is a patient with many atypical moles and another, and these are, these are kind of scary, and you're not sure which one you should biopsy. But again, use your, rely on your digital photography and follow them frequently, at least annually and compare them to old pictures. Take the time to get out the old picture and look at them. I like to take pictures through the dermatoscope 
for those of you that use an iPad-based electronic medical record, it actually takes a pretty nice picture. And then patients who've had a prior melanoma. We talked about that. That's another risk factor for melanoma. All right, time for another question. According to a recent study in the British Medical Journal, difficult melanocytic proliferations, pathologists agree on the diagnosis less than 10% of the time, 10 to 25% of the time, 25 to 50% of the time, or most of the time. Oh, very good. So now we are getting into the idea, the concept that I just spoke about a bit ago, mild and moderate atypia, moderate atypia, severe atypia, and melanoma. There's not a lot of reproducibility on that. And the future is going to be, I think, somewhat more bright for us in terms of how best to manage these lesions. But currently where we are, we see this. This was published last year, and it's looking at a, a number of pathologists that were rating uh, invasive melanoma and trying to see how much reproducibility there is of the, uh, the, the atypia. And so the bottom line, as uh, half of you got right, that uh, 25 to 50 percent of the time that those difficult melanocytic lesions, the ones that go from moderate all the way up to melanoma, as Dirk Elston likes to say, one man's moderately atypical melanoma, I mean, moderately atypical mole is another's melanoma. It can be quite tricky from a histopathological standpoint. And so now we're going we're gonna to move into the current standards. And I can now refrain from using any opinions. Um, talking about pigmented lesions and melanoma is one of my favorite things to talk about. And uh, I like to... Uh, give my opinions to anybody who's going to listen to. And uh, at, at this point, there'll be no more opinions. I'm going to stick to the standards, to what we use in the United States for managing these patients. So the eighth edition was published uh, or implemented on uh, January 1st of this year. And in that current uh, pathologic staging, uh, how do we currently measure the Breslow depth? all over the map. Well, very good. Melanoma is an interesting beast. That was another opinion. I'm sorry. I told you I wasn't going to do that anymore. Um, it's the only human malignancy that's measured to a fraction of a millimeter. And currently, depending on how de deep that particular melanoma is, the Breslow depth will determine how you manage it. So 0 0.1 millimeters is the uh, AJCC uh, standard for for uh, for measuring melanoma currently. So in the seventh edition, and I think that's what a lot of people, 41% of you said, is 0.01 millimeters. That's what it used to be, and but now in the eighth edition, it's 0.1 millimeters because the experts who put together the AJCC realized that 0.01 is a little bit silly. When you're under the microscope, it's it's even a little bit hard to get 0.1 sometimes. So now it's rounded up to the nearest tenth of a millimeter. So 
I mean, you're probably still going to see it because your pathologists are still reporting to the hundredth of a millimeter. I know that my colleagues uh, that I work with in our lab still report to the hundredth of a millimeter, even though I tell them the new standard is if it's 0.75, that's 0.8, and that's important, and you're going to see why that's important in a little bit as well. 0.034 is 0.3, and so I don't bother with the hundredths of a millimeter anymore. That's the current 8th edition uh, AJCC standard, 0.1 millimeter. In the current uh, AJCC, a non-ulcerated melanoma, 0.7 millimeters with two mitoses will be classified as PT1A, PT1B, PT2A, or PT2B. So this is a semi-useful talk, huh? Okay. So it used to be PT1B. So most of you are on, or at least all the respondents, 43% of you. Uh, whoa, no, 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 let's, let's be straight here. A small number of you, only 15% got this right. So the, the seventh edition and I'm going to highlight this a lot in the next few slides, the seventh edition took mitoses into consideration. Now, you're still going to see a mitosis count reported in your synoptic on your melanoma report, but it doesn't matter in terms of staging. And I'm going to explain that a little bit better. But the bottom line is, well, I'll show you in a slide as well, but from 0 to 0.8 is a stage 1, and anything greater than 0.8 to 2 millimeters is a stage 2. This is the pathologic staging. Mitosis does not bump it up to A or B anymore like it did in the seventh edition. If you had mitosis in a melanoma that was less than a millimeter, that made it a PT1B. That's no longer the case anymore. So even though this particular melanoma in this example has two mitoses, it's still a PT1A. And look at this. I pulled this out this morning. This was the, uh, the topic alert that showed up in my email from practice update that shows, you know, we're finally making a little bit of progress here, that the new guidelines actually increase the melanoma staging reproducibility. So importantly, they uh, surveyed 187 pathologists looking at 116 invasive melanomas. So this was just published a few days ago using the AJCC8 criteria and showed that the reproducibility of staging, whether it's PT1A or 1B or 2A or 2B, so these are for, for thinner melanomas, was much more likely to have an, an exact uh, or, or, or a correct consensus with, with the reference range, increasing from 44% to 54% to 54 from AJC7 to 8, and then going up from 72 to 78% for PT1B lesions. So let's talk about the new criteria very quickly. Uh, this is the eighth edition. I told you it was just implemented a few months ago. And some of the important changes are in the seventh edition, as I said, it, up to less than a millimeter was considered uh, a stage one. Now it's only 0 0.8 millimeters. So in the eighth edition, again, PT1A, if it's less than 0.8 millimeters, it's a PT1B if it's 0.8 to one, and it's non-ulcerated. 
and then it's PT1B if it's less than, than uh, 8 mil, 0.8 millimeters and ulcerated. Is everybody following that? It's, it's, it's a little bit complicated. And, and why is this important? And, and we'll talk about this a lot more after lunch. But for those of you that order sentinel lymph node biopsies, this is, is a very important cutoff and, and what was determined to be significant when uh, managing patients with those melanomas that are in that kind of gray zone. And we see a lot of them. So just going back and comparing the, the updates, as I said a second ago, the primary tumor mitotic rate, it's not necessarily prognostic anymore. You might still see it in the report, and we'll, we'll tell you why in a second. So it's no longer used as a, as a T category criterion for the eighth edition. Um, so like I said, it's been removed in, in substratifying from A and B for those, those T1 tumors because the 0.8 millimeter cutoff range was actually shown to be far more important and that whether you had mitosis or not was less important. But there, there's more to be said about that. So these are little comments that, that came from the, uh, the, the publication of the AJCC 8th edition, that mitotic rate remains a major, determining prog uh, major de determinant of prognosis across its dynamic range. Why is that important? So sometimes... When you're looking at, let's say, a thin melanoma from the dermatopathologist's perspective, if I'm looking at one that's, say, if I was going to measure it in depth and it's 0.5 millimeters and there's, mitosis, and, and there's no mitosis, that's the kind of thing that's going to sway a pathologist possibly from a severely atypical dysplastic nevus to a melanoma. And sometimes, a lot of pathologists kind of use this criteria. If there's a mitosis or two, they say, that seals the deal. This is an invasive melanoma. But if there's no mitosis and they look really, really hard, say, ah, it's one of those, it's kind of on the fence. We'll call it a severely atypical nevus uh, and leave it at that. And so for, in that particular situation, and again, I'm, I'm talking more about what goes on in the laboratory from the, the pathologist's perspective. Let's say there were... 20 mitoses or 12, well, then it's a slam dunk, no question. This is definitely melanoma. But to me, as a pathologist, that also says something about the biological behavior about the melanoma. This thing is moving. It's hot. It's, it's re replicating really fast if it has, say, six or more mitoses. Now, that hasn't been quantified in any of these, of these criteria. There have been a few studies that show that mitoses matters, but it doesn't show up in any of these uh, AJCC editions. Uh, so the final point on that is the mitotic rate should be assessed and recorded for all primary invasive melanomas. So you're still going to see it on there, but again, it, it's not going to affect whether it's a PT1A or a PT1B like it used to in the seventh edition. And then this, this final point that the, the authors of the eighth edition put in, uh, that it's likely going to remain an important uh, parameter for future development. So that they're kind of leaving it open, that they, they haven't closed the book on mitoses, as, as, as I hope I, I didn't... Uh, or I hope that I've emphasized that it still has importance, just not so much in staging of the thin melanomas anymore. So other important uh, update from AJCC7 to AJCC8, and this is important for us to think about in managing our, our patients, is nodal status. So sentinel lymph nodes previously were defined as, as microscopic. If you palpated and you didn't feel anything, then but you only saw it on imaging, then that was called clinically occult. So it was there, 
but you couldn't tell. It used to be called uh, macroscopic if it was found um, on clinical exam or imaging, but now we call it clinically detected. And I'll, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in a second. And then there's non-nodal regional disease, like microsatellites or satellitosis, uh, melanoma in transit, in transit mets. And, and without getting into too much detail now, I'm just going to show you what that looks like here. There's a whole additional staging of, of the nodes as it pertains to, to in-transit METs, and I'm going to show you what that looks like in a second here. So looking at the seventh edition, if you have a patient here with a primary melanoma, let's say down on their leg, and it has a depth, so it gets a pathologic staging, and then it's found that they have uh, clinically occult uh, uh, one hot node, that's a micromet, then that would be N1A staging in the seventh edition. And based and de dependent on whether the primary tumor was ulcerated or not, that would either be stage 3A or stage 3B if it's ulcerated. Now, looking at a number of different positive nodes, if you have your, your primary tumor, and now we have three positive nodes, that bumps you up to N2 with macromets because you can either feel these or, or see them. That's how the seventh edition went. And then again, ulceration plays a role. If it's ulcerated, then it's a 3B. If it's not, uh, I'm sorry, 3B if it's not, 3C if it is ulcerated. So the difference between clinically occult and, and clinically apparent. Now here's an example of a, of a patient of mine who presented a couple of years ago with what I thought was going to be an obvious melanoma, and it was just right in front of his ear. He ended up going to the uh, mass general mass eye and ear and ended up with this. And we thought he was doing great a year later. Melanoma, gone. Uh, but then he comes in with this little nodule, and I'll be honest, I don't know if I would have seen that if I wasn't really uh, palpating. You know, if you just look, you don't really see that much there. But... Uh, if you kind of run your finger over it, you're like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Is this a swollen node or is this a microsatellite? And unfortunately for him, it was an in-transit MET. He had already had his nodes taken out before. Uh, so, so what does that look like uh, in terms of staging? If you have your, your primary tumor and in-transit METs that you can palpate along with nodes, then that's a stage uh, N2C. Again, whether the, uh, the primary tumor is ulcerated or not is going to, to come into play, at whether it's 3B or 3C. If there are multiple nodes, hot nodes, this is kind of the worst situation to be in. You have in-transit mets, multiple nodes, and your, your primary tumor. That's going to give you N3 with, with uh, four or more nodes. And then that one's going to be stage 3C regardless of the T status. Now, in the current staging, I'm going to move on here, there's now an A, B, C, and a D for, for the stage 3s. So if you look at the AJCC uh, on the, for the 8th edition on the right, there's now this additional, which is a pathological T4B melanoma. That used to be a 3C. So a T4B is a melanoma that's greater than four millimeters thickness, so greater than four millimeters thickness, 
and ulcerated. That is a bad, bad melanoma. It's going to be 3D uh, regardless if there's positive nodes. I'm not going to belabor this too much because, again, we're talking about management of early and thin melanoma. This is kind of what happens after you've made the diagnosis of the melanomas that, that you were managing on your own. After lunch, we're going to get into the weeds on what happens when they get a little bit worse. So I'm going to leave the, uh, the talk on uh, sentinel lymph nodes uh, to after lunch. But now another question, and this is important because it will determine if you've been paying attention. We have an ulcerated melanoma here, 0.9 millimeters with two mitoses. By the current classification, what is this? All right, good. It's ulcerated. It's going to be a B, and it's uh, greater than uh, uh, than, than 0.8 millimeters. Okay. We were asked these questions before. Uh, before we, we get to the very end here, we're going to go over these from the pre-test. So these are the post-test questions. Again, the invasive melanoma that was 0.55 millimeters thick, how should you treat this? Observation, wide local excision, half a millimeter margins, one centimeter margins, one centimeter margins refer to Sir Jonk, or wide local excision with two centimeter margins. All right, good job. More people got it right this time than before, but so the, the majority of you are on board with this. Oh, good. Improvement. And I don't think I gave the answer on that one throughout, but we're going to talk about this, and that's what I'm going to wrap it up with, is the final management uh, by the NCCN guidelines. Post uh, two question follow-up for patients with melanoma should. This one is a little bit uh, controversial. Should it occur on an annual basis? Every six months? Every three months for the first year? And then every six months thereafter for four years? whatever the primary care doc wants, whatever the primary care. All right, everybody got it right this time. Good job. A little controversial. Um, at least for the first year, if somebody has a melanoma in my clinic, I see them every three months. The next year, I probably see them every six months. And so now when you get into that year three, four, five, by this standard that I just laid out here, you should be seeing them every six months. In some patients, that may be a slight overutilization of resources. Let's say you have the patient, uh, like my one lady with the melanoma on the uh, inside of the thigh. I'm still following her at every six months, but I'm probably going to start seeing her annually because there's nothing else on her body. That's it. So the patients that have a lot of atypical moles, then you should definitely adhere to this. And some of them, like my police officer, the 44-year-old guy, he's probably going to be on my six-month plan for life. Uh, that's just what it is for, for him now. Unless, of course, he buys one of those AI devices at home. Because this guy's very savvy, and he gets one of those CNN neural network things, and he can monitor his moles at home. And then he won't have to see me. And then I'll lose a patient, and then I'll be sad. So good job, guys. Slight improvement there. Last one, MIS, best managed by radiation. 
three millimeter margins, five millimeter margins, or 10 millimeter margins. If you don't get 100% on this one, I'm not coming back to do the after lunch talk. You know, this one is actually controversial. Uh, the, the book still says 89%, but there is some wiggle room there because there have been some publications that show 7, 8, and even 10 millimeters is preferred, especially on those ones that have fuzzy borders. You know the ones I'm talking about. Not your obvious. It looks like a dysplastic mole, but it turns out to be a melanoma in situ. You could very confidently clear that thing with 5 millimeter margins. But those funny lenical maligna, melanoma in situ ones, the thought is now, it's rough, it's hard if, you know, if you're talking about the face to get you know, a one centimeter margin or a 0.7. Uh, that's why I like Mohs for, for melanoma in situ on the face. Uh, but, but on the body, if it's not one of those fuzzy lenical maligna types, you could do five millimeter margins. But if it is one of those funny lenical maligna types, I'm gonna air to get as much as I possibly can, especially if it's like on the back, chest, or thigh, or something like that. All right, we're about to round it out here. So here's one of those examples of a melanoma in situ. I thought this was gonna be invasive. So did my five millimeter margins on this guy's arm. It was pretty recent, so um, I'm hopeful that he's gonna do fine. But man, even just that tiny little thing ended up with a scar this big. It's the way it goes. So now we're going we're gonna to close out here for the last couple of minutes and just focus on the NCCN guidelines to make sure that everybody's on board. And it seems like you already are, so that's good. Melanoma in situ, 0.5 to 1 centimeter margins. We, we kind of talked about that a little bit. For a melanoma that's less than or equal to millimeter, 1 centimeter margin. This is taken verbatim from the guidelines. And it's kind of, it seems a little silly to me, and I'll, I'll make it tighter for you in a second. So if it's 1 to 2 millimeters, then get a one to two centimeter margin. If it's, that noise? If it's two to four millimeters, then it's two centimeter margin. Here's where it gets silly. Does anybody see a little bit of an inconsistency here? Greater than four millimeters gets you a two centimeter margin. Isn't that just, look at the last two. The same thing as saying anything greater than two millimeters should get a two centimeter margin. So forget about that. Two to four, greater than four. It's greater than two, two centimeters. If you can do it within reason, at that point, you might start thinking about surgical oncology. Almost certainly, you should be thinking about surgical oncology when you're thinking about a melanoma that big because a sentinel lymph node is probably going to be indicated, and we'll talk about that a lot more at, at lunchtime or after lunch. So there are the final guidelines. Uh, subject to any questions that you all have, that is the conclusion of my lecture on early and thin melanoma. Oh, so I see the question there. Uh, have you seen the video melanoma epidemic? If so, if you have any, I have not seen that video. I can guess what it might be about. There's a, there is this phenomenon of a, a melanoma epidemic in the country, and a lot of it has to do with something that I feel very strongly about. I think that we biopsy way too many things. I think pathology, notice how I say I think. These are opinions. I think that there are many pathologists that are overcalling melanoma severely atypical nevi or even a moderately atypical nevus that would never do anything, just call it melanoma because it's just easier to do that and not risk getting sued for missing a melanoma. That's the second most common reason that pathologists get sued. Number one is missing a breast cancer or 
messing up a breast cancer diagnosis in pathology, and number two is uh, messing up a atypical mole diagnosis, either overcalling it or undercalling it. Another question is, any thoughts or experience on the new adhesive RNA biopsy system, DermTIC? I'm not familiar with it at all, to be honest with you, but I will say that uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of technology, and I think that uh, there's going to be so many things that, that we're going to have available to us in the future. I've heard some things about it that are quite positive, but at least in, in my practice, I haven't uh, incorporated it at all. Does an excisional biopsy of a suspected melanoma interfere with lymphocentigraphy and sentinel lymph node? That's a great question, and it's a little bit controversial. Some surgical oncologists will tell you that if you undermine... So I gave you the example of my 44-year-old policeman that had that humongous melanoma, and I did like a one-millimeter margin around the whole thing. But you don't undermine if you try and cut all the way around it when you're putting it back together like an intermediate layer closure, um, that could potentially interfere with lymphocentigraphy. And we're going to talk about that a lot after lunch and the sentinel lymph node biopsy when we talk about locally advanced and metastatic melanoma. So if you just cut it out and then put it back together, I think not. So I encourage you to, to manage it the way that we had talked about, which is an excisional biopsy. And I think there are no more questions. Oh, no, here comes more. Uh, that one's the exact same question as what we just saw. Long one here. I worry about digital photography and serial follow-up because if one, do, if one of those nevi eventually turns out to be malignant, there is then a digital pictorial record that could be used in a lawsuit alleging that the provider should have biopsied the lesion. I haven't heard of any case of this happening. And I think that your due diligence of actually having that photograph is going to be in your best interest and protective. The, the one caveat is if you're taking a picture of something that's wildly atypical and letting it ride, then, then that's, that, that's a little bit on you. And, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about um, a bit ago about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So that's what's going to get you in trouble. The good and the bad, you're safe. You're safe because you're practicing the standard of care. If you're looking at an obviously benign lesion and you document that this is, a, I think that this is benign, then everybody in this room is going to stand at your defense because remember, to, to be sued and, and to lose in a lawsuit, there has to be negligence and you have to violate the standard of care. So if you're looking at something that's obviously easy and it's documented in a picture and you manage it the way you're supposed to, then everybody's going to stand up in your defense because that's a standard of care. I keep going back to my woman with the melanoma on the thigh. If I took a picture of that thing and said, I'm going to let it ride, I think there would be a lot of people in this room that go, Jarrell, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. You're going to lose this one because you documented something bad. But that's why we're experts, right? Because we're supposed to know when to do this and not do this. So I don't worry about digital photography haunting me later. I feel very, very strongly that it's going to protect me later. And I, and I encourage everybody to use digital photography with confidence. So what's your theory on the shave versus the punch, removing the entire lesion, affecting treatment outcomes? Either way is fine. Just get underneath it. 
or get all around it. And I, I hope that I kind of made that point at the beginning. If you're talking about uh, a lesion that can easily fit in that little cookie cutter punch, then by all means, that's, that's probably the way to do it. Uh, just clear the whole thing. Don't do a partial biopsy of a much larger lesion. So my example was the police officer with the melanoma this big. If you do a punch biopsy right in the middle, that's a horrible mistake because you're, you, you may end up just going right through benign nevus and then you just left all that melanoma and you're like, okay, you're fine, it's benign nevus. That's a lawsuit. Um, and shave, shave's perfectly fine as long as you get underneath it. I also gave you examples of the 19-year-old tanning bed addicted lady with the two melanomas. Somebody did a bad thing. Whoever was the dermatologist there, remember you heard me wag my finger at them, they did a shave, but they cut right through it. So her staging was, was all off because we don't know what the exact Breslow depth was on that. What's the final conclusion on nail salon light risk? You know, truth be told, I don't have enough experience with that. I'm not concerned about it for melanoma, to be honest with you. I think somebody gave a talk a little bit ago on non-melanoma skin cancer. I think it does have a place there and probably increases your risk for uh, basal and squame. Please comment on the potential melanoma protective effect from the yellow fever vaccine. I would love to if I knew something about that, so I apologize. I don't know if there is. I'll talk to you about the uh, TVEC after lunch, and uh, the, it's, it's a herpetic uh, hybrid, which is actually very therapeutic, but I don't think that has anything to do with yellow fever. What is it about coffee that is preventative for melanoma? Huh. Truth be told, that was more of a joke, to be honest with you. Even though that article got published in the, uh, the JNCI, an extremely reputable journal, um, I don't know what the mechanism of action is. People probably uh, have, have studied it at the basic science level. Uh, but, but truth be told, I'm positive that still has way yet to be worked out. At this point, it's more of an association that people who drink more coffee less likely to get melanoma. I don't know why. And, and maybe there is the same effect in Red Bull. I think Red Bull's bad for you in other ways, so stick to the coffee. Is having a large number of nevi also risk factor for melanoma? Yes. Let's leave it at that, because how many more questions are? I don't want to run out of time here. I'm happy to answer questions all day if you want, but uh, people want to go to lunch too. Any real concern for a 40-year-old female with a dozen recently new halo nevi when they all appear more clinical, uh, appear normal clinically and dermoscopically? Yes. Uh, I have concern for that 40-year-old female that she has uh, leukoderma of melanoma. She, she doesn't obviously have that. She may not have that, but that's the thing that I would be afraid that she has. Leukoderma of melanoma is a phenomenon when your immune system starts attacking all your nevi because you have some other ominous melanoma somewhere. So I'm going to look hard for a melanoma in this young lady. I'm going to look for a regressed melanoma, the possibility of a regressed melanoma, because that may have been what happened. Maybe she had a regressed melanoma someplace that she doesn't look, inside thigh, maybe in the the hairline back here or something. If there's a, a regressing melanoma and the immune system is going crazy, rightfully so, and it's now attacking all the benign nevi, She may have a metastatic melanoma in her gut. You have to decide how far you want to take it. But the question was, a lot of normal appearing halo nevi that just suddenly appeared is a huge red flag for me. And it means look hard for a melanoma. 
now I think we're at the end. Enjoy your lunch. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.